and welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for Apex Race Manager, the mobile management simulator. My name is Michael Aminato, and on this week's edition, the Singapore Grand Prix, could Daniel Ricciardo have ever won the race from Lewis Hamilton? And is the 2017 championship already over? That's all to come on this edition of the Strategy Report. My name's Michael Aminato, fresh from the Singapore Grand Prix. I'm joined to review that very race by the editor of E-Racing magazine, Trent Price. How are you? Good evening. Yeah, I'm well. Thanks for having me, Michael. That's no problem at all. An interesting race to review this one. Uh, an important race, I think, in obviously this championship and uh, for a whole host of other reasons we'll get to. Let's start with, well, the very red elephant in the room. Smash Metal's put on a lot of weight since last weekend. Mm. Uh, that crash on lap one, uh, looking at that crash, before we consider the mechanics of it Hmm. let's set up the race and why this was such a big deal this was an important grand prix for ferrari not just because we're seven rounds or now six rounds out from the end of the season but this is the last sort of shoe in ferrari circuit on the calendar this was meant to suit them to a t to come away with no points that's a pretty big blow it's putting all your eggs in one basket and realize it had no stitching at the bottom (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty much it yeah Yeah. i mean but that's 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 the that's the mindset maybe they well, you couldn't actually say that they, they, they took it for granted because they didn't. It was just simply uh, the wrong place, wrong time. Well, actually, mm-hmm. wrong reaction. It was probably Vettel was used to a certain style off the line, mm-hmm. chopping people, and he, it's come undone. It's come undone for him a couple of times over the years, obviously most notable at, uh, in 2010 in, in Turkey mm-hmm. w- with Weber. But, um, yeah, as Mark said, he tends to forget where the rear of his car is at times that there might be someone else there. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, there's a lot of talk about whenever we see crashes like this, uh, that the mirrors don't work and so on. But the reality is, at a start like that, mm. you can't really see who's exactly around you. There's no. not a lot of vision to the left of right of you in a in a Formula One car, so we can mm. understand from that perspective. But uh, I think one of the major criticisms levelled of Sebastian Vettel here is maybe not so much the move itself, but for a driver who knew he was on pole possibly mm. was about to lose the lead but still only possibly at that point he still had the more or less the optimum line mm. knowing his main title contender was starting from fifth notwithstanding the great start he had which he didn't yeah. know at that time yes. a little bit more circumspection <coughs> a little bit more uh, caution perhaps could have been called for given he was so it's such a finely balanced championship i think he was just totally fixated on the advantage mm-hmm. that could be gained from it that he lost all of that perspective at the race start, it was just a simple case of that. It was literally, I have to get in the first corner first, mm-hmm. and then I've won it. I think he felt that if I didn't do that, maybe he would get held up. If Lewis did get an advantage off the line, then they would have been closer anyway. And that was probably playing in his mind. They probably went through a number of scenarios the night before, mm-hmm. and they just decided, no, we, we need to be leading first. It does seem a bit like that because I can't help but go back to qualifying. Uh, Now, to set the scene, all of the free practice sessions were led by Red Bull Racing. They were looking very strong at this circuit. The first two segments of qualifying also led by Red Bull Racing. The only session Ferrari topped this whole weekend, including the races it so transpired, uh, was qualifying three, which is, of course, the one that mattered in qualifying. But the relief in Sebastian Vettel's voice after that on the team radio, even in the interviews afterwards where he didn't seem to be able to get his thoughts together, seemed to underline that idea idea that not only was Ferrari extremely aware of the importance of this race being a race they should have won, that pressure associated with it seemed to be playing into that whole process. Mm. And I think, like you say, that really played into that race start. And perhaps Mm. for both drivers, Kimi Raikkonen getting a fantastic start and trying to lead the race on his own as well. Yeah, I think he was just absolutely G'd up. I mean, obviously in qualifying, 
Ferrari were around about, I mean, at the, at the start of practice, at, at least six tenths off mm-hmm. Daniel, and, and then inevitably after that, um, both the Red Bulls. Um, but then they were able to creep a little bit closer towards qualifying. But in Q3, that extra grunt from the Ferrari engine is probably worth a bit over a tenth. Mm-hmm. So that notwithstanding, it was just a ridiculously outstanding lap. From mm-hmm. Vettel, even even Horner was just sort of going. Oh, I forgot how good he was <laughs> over one lap, um, and then I guess yeah, he just took that because he probably still felt the car was probably at a little bit of a disadvantage to the Red Bulls over the race distance, and certainly Daniel did nothing to ease that, you know, by saying mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still going to win this from third. So that would have been playing on his mind, all those things. Mm-hmm. So and of course inevitably. It was all done in six seconds. Yep, uh, possibly the title over in six seconds uh, because if we consider the points now and considering Lewis Hamilton went on to win and I can't imagine what must have been going through Sebastian Vettel's head when his car was spun around out of turn three and saw yep. none other than Lewis Hamilton passing oh, yeah. him in the lead. Yeah. It would be a terrible feeling. He would have vomited in his own helmet. <laughs> and I'm surprised it was a missed opportunity for him and a missed opportunity for all the publications gone in six seconds. None of that title was used. <laughs> Oh, someone make a note of that. I'm going to make oh, up the headline for the last report. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> but the the points gap now uh, to preempt the entire process of this race review program mm. is 28 points, yeah. which is an mm. enormous turnaround. It was three points before this, Lewis Hamilton to Lewis Hamilton's advantage, and to set up the mathematics of why this was such a, a an important moment for the championship is that if Lewis Hamilton were to win the next Grand Prix in Malaysia, which is a circuit that should suit the, the Mercedes, not necessarily more than the Ferrari, but mm. certainly more an even playing field, and Sebastian Vettel finishes third, Lewis Hamilton can, can finish second for the rest of the season. It's a, sort of the, the mirror situation of last year where it was Nico Rosberg who could finish second. Uh, Sebastian Vettel finishes second. He has to win all of the subsequent races and then will win on mm. countback for the number of wins. But considering mm. how finely balanced it is, it seems unlikely he'd be able to win every Grand Prix without a challenge. So mm. it really is an uphill fight from here for Ferrari, and that will be an important six seconds. Well, there's a couple of things here uh, in that. And obviously last year, it ebbed and flowed the championship between Rosberg and Hamilton so much that there's a 40-point deficit at one stage, mm-hmm. which Hamilton managed to crawl back. But I think there's a lot of truth in what you say in terms of Lewis only has to finish second, but we know what Lewis is like. He won't want to finish second. So there could be potential scenarios where a second is on the cards or potential potential winners on the cards, mm-hmm. which might force him into a situation where he probably shouldn't take a chance. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that could... That could result in a DNF. We don't know. It could be a mechanical DNF. It only needs one of those, and then Sebastian's within three points again. And, of course, who can forget this time last year, the Malaysian Grand Prix we're speaking of, where Lewis Hamilton was yes. befallen by exactly that, a mechanical issue with his power unit. His so. Iago moment with the gods, <laughs> yeah. But it is that serious. It's down to essentially Lewis Hamilton's reliability or racing craft or otherwise levelling out the points, or we're going to see a mighty comeback from Ferrari, mm. equally noteworthy in, in the story of this championship. To talk one more thing about this crash before we move on to the rest of the race and Lewis, how Lewis Hamilton's win was set up from there, do you see this as a racing incident? This is the argument of the next two weeks. Can anyone be apportioned the majority of the blame here? If there's any blame to be had, it would be a Sebastian for just being too presumptuous mm-hmm. and turning in. And that's it. Other than that, it's a racing incident. Mm-hmm. I mean, Verstappen, was he couldn't disappear, basically. He couldn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, you know, if anyone knows the film Malcolm, he couldn't just <laughs> turn into a bike, <laughs> and, you know, and allow the Ferraris past. He, he gave Lewis... 
Oh, sorry, um, Sebastian, in a bit of room, but in the process of doing that, he smacked into Kimmy. He just, mm-hmm. There was a wall there, yeah. and the physics just don't work that way. It's a good thing this wasn't the race that Sergio Macchione was at. It was the previous race in Italy. It's probably mm. for the best of all the drivers and all the staff. Personnel. Yeah, I, I don't know what the manslaughter laws are like in, <laughs> in Singapore. But... <laughs> I imagine they're fairly serious, but yeah. you know, that's the way it should be. Uh, looking at the broader Grand Prix, though, and how the strategies played out to set up Lewis Hamilton's victory, uh, this race started wet. The first wet Singapore Grand Prix we've had. This is the 10th yeah. edition of the race. Kind of surprising considering the weather is relatively predictable there. It's always hot. It's always humid. There's normally a rain shower in the afternoon. Mm. I think there had been one wet session previously, but it was only wet from beforehand and it mm. was a day session. So no one knew, A, what wet conditions were really like and B, what it was like under lights, which mm. is a major concern for the drivers because mm. obviously the spray is pretty bad in Formula 1 when there's a lot of standing water anyway because it's mm. how tyres work. Uh, and how that lights up was a serious difficulty. But and you're a man with racing driver experience. This was a big unknown for every driver. No experience on this wet track. Mm. Worse, it's a street circuit, so the surface is unpredictable. Yeah. What do you think the mindset was going into that race? We saw a variety of drivers not really know which tie to choose between the intermediate and the wet to start the Grand Prix. Mm. There's a lot of pressure in that situation. Well, the intermediate was the right call mm-hmm. because there wasn't enough standing water to, to get rid of water. It was just a matter of, okay, we need something soft and create a lot of grip on a surface, which is a bit of a patchwork quilt. It changes quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, through the, so it's almost like a rally stage. You don't know what you're going to get at the next corner. Um, on top of that as well, you would have had a bit of rain mm-hmm. when you haven't had a lot of rain. And all that does was bring the oil just to the top of the surface. It doesn't wash it away. So you don't have a green track again. You've just got areas where you go offline and it's just literal oil and rubber mm-hmm. buildup, which makes it even more unpredictable as well. Um, but I thought... Most of them did a pretty good job, certainly in the first couple of laps. I mean, the visibility was ridiculous. I mean, you could see from the oil, it was just like a dirty swell. It was like a washing mm-hmm. machine filled with just dirty washing. You couldn't <laughs> see anything in front of you, and, it was, and so dark as well. Mm-hmm. It was a bit like David Lynch filmed it. <laughs> it was. It was interesting from my perspective just above the garages where the media centre is. The, the effect of the spray as they rocketed down the straight was... In some, yes, in some, it was just very cinematic. It was mm. a very dramatic-looking picture, but I couldn't imagine what it would be like to driving behind one of those cars, the amount of water that would be hitting There was visor. one shot, yeah, which showed it, and it was it was worse than, than normal. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you saw a couple of... It was probably the most accurate you would actually have from a driver's perspective, because obviously the high definition doesn't mm-hmm. really capture what the eye does in those circumstances. But with that, with the dark and with the light shining on it, all, all the... Um, the non-natural light shining on it, and, and just that, that oil that was being washed up was the closest, I guess, you would come to driving in those conditions. It just mm-hmm. it just felt like you were there. Yeah, it's um, it was an interesting and a, a very new experience for Formula mm. 1, I suppose, those exact conditions. But I guess we've had it now, which is good data should it ever happen again. Probably the mm. next 10 races will all be wet. Who knows? Who's to say? Uh, that set up, though, what was an interesting prospect for what was ultimately the first of three triggers. This is the way we're going to address this race that Daniel Ricciardo had to overcome, potentially, mm. Lewis Hamilton. Now, of course, this was the way it looked in the race. It's since transpired that not only was Daniel Ricciardo in those conditions uh, in a car that wasn't quite as overwhelmingly competitive as it seemed earlier in the weekend. Mm. He had a gearbox problem. It was a, yeah. a gearbox oil problem, it turned out. So he was losing something like half a second a lap, which is quite a lot considering this is a, a circuit where I mean, it's partly confidence. You've got to be able to throw your car around mm. and so on and so forth. Uh, but there are three potential opportunities here. And the first one was the first safety, or the second safety car, I should say, not including the first one for 
that incredible accident on on mm. lap one at turn one and that was for daniel fiat who crashed he just simply lost control of the car it was very slippery yeah no one's going to blame him for that in these conditions he was mm. having a go in clear air and this the opportunity was seized by red bull racing they switched the car from obviously the used intermediate tire hmm. to new ones because he had a sufficient gap. Yes, he was helped slightly by Hulkenberg and Perez in front of him, who uh, one lap later uh, stopped for the same idea. Had they not, he would have started behind them and hmm. had to pass them. But for Daniel Ricciardo specifically, because this is a broader narrative in the race, that should have been a good way forward. But I suppose the fact that he couldn't overpower Lewis Hamilton from there was sort of a sign to things to come. Well, it's an interesting one because if you look at historically the way Red Bull have handled Daniel's pit stops, they haven't been the best. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly Spain and Monaco and a few other. Just in terms yeah. of getting him out in traffic, has always been pretty bad with that. And it's almost as if, and I, and I don't know when the gearbox problem started to occur, it's if because of that they started to think how they should normally think mm-hmm. in a race and they started going slightly conservative. We don't need him in traffic when he's got a problem. Yeah. It's only going to exacerbate that because he's going to be shifting at the non-convenient times you know, mm-hmm. in terms of preserving that gearbox. So I think that also probably influenced their decision to pit him at that time, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually worked out quite well because he was able to defend against Botas quite easily. Yeah, and that did help Yeah, against Botas, like you say, didn't do too much with Lewis Hamilton, who, by mm. his own admission, that doesn't really count as a phrase, though, does it? Because Lewis Hamilton will admit mm. to many things uh, in the psychological game that is a world championship, said mm. he knew he was going to win when the rain did come down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's worth noting, though, he's very good in the rain, so there's, there's a little bit to that. Mm. Um, but that didn't have any effect. Unusually, mm. uh, the gaps grew pretty much just as quickly as they were beforehand. Mm. So uh, a good opportunity, but one that nonetheless didn't work. If we detour slightly from the race for the lead here, Mm. this was actually, for mostly everybody else's Grand Prix, the decisive factor in their various positions because all those other drivers who did stop for new tyres, though it worked for Daniel Ricciardo, didn't work for most other drivers. And I talk here of Carlos Sainz in particular as a good Mm. example of a driver who didn't stop, who stuck it out on those intermediate tyres that did last a fairly long time uh, they are the du- more durable i suppose wet tire hmm. and that set him up for the best finish of his career uh, he says the most important race of his career as well uh fourth place because he gained a great deal when the likes of perez for example nico hockenberg too stopped hmm. uh and and he didn't and also just a great race from him as a driver it's i mean it's pretty evident when he started in f1 I mean, watching him just in practice and slowly build up, he really is a thinking driver. Mm-hmm. You know, he uses his brain to full effect, and uh, and that comes a lot from his his father, not because they worked in different disciplines, but mm-hmm. in terms of uh, going that extra mile and and looking at every little factor of it. I mean, Sainz was the first guy in rally to realize that if you want to win a world rally championship, you have to win on every kind of surface mm-hmm. and every kind of condition. Up until then teams were just using specialist drivers to win particular rallies and a lot of that he has imparted onto Carlos Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a large part of his makeup but he just thinks about what he's doing he's probably got that extra brain capacity to think about these things where a lot of drivers get very wound up and mm-hmm. fed up you can hear, hear him on the radio you know they're out of breath and mm-hmm. yeah so I think that was a large part of it obviously when he pitted a good uh, contributing factor to that but you've got to make it work yeah, absolutely. And if we stick with Carlos Sainz for just a moment, we talk about making it work. He almost shouldn't have finished where he did. He had 
thereafter slightly less than optimal strategy, suboptimal mm. if you'd like to say, because whilst everyone made what seemed to be the logical decision to stop for ultra soft tyres, them being the, the softest, also looking quite durable as they have all season really, but also around Singapore, especially given that the temperatures were cooler, abrasion mm. was not quite as high as early mm. in the weekend, which was also part of why Mercedes could make them last so long. Mm. He instead stopped for the super soft tyre, so one step harder, and he said certainly the opening part of that phase where they were struggling to warm up, he had to do a lot of uh, vigorous defending uh, yes, against yeah. uh, the likes of well, Perez for one um, and then there was Hockenberg in front of him too Yeah, so that really did show the, I guess the versatility and on a weekend where he's been confirmed as next year's Renault driver yeah I mean you're happy to go through a little bit of pain knowing mm-hmm. you're going to get the advantage later on you do see a lot of drivers who just want that initial um, speed mm-hmm. and, and even though they, if they know well they have to go into this tyre because they have no other options they still go flat out and they don't think about the, the last couple of laps mm-hmm. of having to work on that tyre. So he's sort of two steps ahead. He goes, well, I will compromise myself now to get the advantage later. And on a track like that where you want grip, because if, if you don't have grip, you're in the wall most of the time. <laughs> yes. It's remarkable confidence from the guy. Yeah, and a very impressive race from him. Uh, other drivers were, were less fortunate. The ones who did manage to get through that first stint without stopping were, were Lance Stroll and Romain Grosjean principally. Uh, obviously, Kvyat and Alonso, uh, Kvyat didn't, they, neither of them had the opportunity to stop. Mm. They both retired tragically before that point. But everyone else was sort of there for or thereafter in the mix. Uh, most of them, of course, had wet tyres and then subsequently decided to stop to the intermediate tyre because it was the correct tyre to be on. But it's an interesting point in that race. There was a lot of tension at that moment because if we sort of think back to, I guess, the highest profile example, last year's Monaco Grand Prix, where there was that question, can you second guess the weather, I guess, and stay on the wet tyre, even if it's ageing quite a bit and and hope that the the crossover to slicks comes quite soon? Hmm. Or do you assume that the wet weather is going to last for quite a while and make that stop, potentially lose that place, banking on you being able to get it back? Because Hmm. this goes back to the unknown of Singapore. No one knew how long that track would remain uh, not suitable for dry tyres. Well, yes, but it's also very hot mm-hmm. as well. So most of that water, if there wasn't a huge amount, would evaporate relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was playing on Kevin Magnuson's mind. <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I would say no. Because um, he had really had no other choice but to gamble. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the whole... Sky Sports thing of trying to turn him into a bad boy has gone, gone to his head and he's just playing the rebel and it just sort of worked out for him. <laughs> it was fortunate for him, I suppose, because at that moment, I think it was almost, and obviously no one knows exactly when the various radio communications that are played through the television uh, were actually said by the drivers and, and mechanics and so on, but it was sort of just before Magnussen stopped, a lot of drivers were saying, principally as well, Lewis Hamilton and Daniel Ricciardo in the lead, saying mm. they didn't really think the track was ready for slicks. It was still mm. quite greasy, obviously, and there were parts of the track that were still, they, they had water on them, quite a bit of water. I think mm. the, the second sector in particular was quite poor when the first sector mm. maybe looked not so bad. So, I mean, it takes a lot of guts there. I guess maybe yeah. this is his shaping as the next Jensen Button who would yeah. always be so ambitious. Well, it does take a lot of guts, but then I guess also the time it takes for you to get in, pit, and get out again, that's all the time where the track is drying as well. Mm-hmm. So you've already gained a little bit without having to race on a, that intermediate period where it's still drying. So by the time he came out, the track would have been a little bit drier. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned earlier, by the time he was getting up to speed, all those tyres up to speed, by the time everyone else pitted for slicks, he already had a two-lap advantage on them in terms mm-hmm. of the, the uh, ideal operation of the tyre. And this is the really interesting part here. Now, the way these sort of strategy calls work is that 
let's take Jensen Button for an example. Historically, it has been him. Uh, he'll come in when the track seems just about ready, at least to him, for slicks. And everyone watches that first sector and the mm. second sector because usually if he's made exactly the right call, they'll light up purple. They'll be faster mm. sectors of the race. But Magnussen's did it. Magnussen's were more or less the same as everyone on intermediate tyres. There didn't seem to be a lot of improvement. So there was hesitation after he stopped on lap 24. The only other driver who'd taken a gamble was Massa, but because he was having mm. a pretty poor first stint, an unlucky mm. first stint. And no one stopped on lap 25, which is mm. unusual because mm. had, had it been assumed to be the correct call, you'd see a lot of drivers do that. But because the conditions were a little bit cooler than, than on previous days on the weekend, cooler for Singapore, mm. it was still 28 degrees or there, yeah, it's yeah. quite hot. Uh, and because there was so much to risk in those conditions, they were so slippery and so greasy, as we were saying, no one followed him in. So he really did get uh, an interesting advantage there because I suppose he could feel that they were about right, but the times couldn't show it. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it could be ten- potentially the fact that he may not have a drive next year, so what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> and, then, and then also there's, there's not a huge amount of corners in the, in the mm-hmm. first sector as well. You know, there's a couple of straights. So you could have even out the averages depending mm-hmm. on what kind of corners are there, you know, compared to everyone else. Where, where, is, where is that kind of grip going to show up? Yes, against the other tyres, so mm-hmm. a lot of factors to to think about, and and if it's if the margins are very small, certainly you wouldn't you wouldn't bother based mm-hmm. on that information. Yeah, now a lot of drivers came in between laps twenty six and twenty seven. In fact, most of them came in on twenty seven. It took Daniel Ricciardo though, and this is where a lot of people feel like there was a a small error made by Red Bull Racing. Perhaps mm. took him until lap twenty eight to come in, so he was amongst the last cars. In fact, I think only four, he was amongst four or five to stop on lap twenty eight. So getting mm. towards the end there. Mm. Now, granted, Lewis Hamilton was likely to just echo him on the next lap anyway, but because the tyres were taking so long to warm up, mm. that deprived him of what could. Have have been an undercut because essentially you needed two laps to undercut as opposed to the usual one potentially but getting back in terms of that overlap uh the longer he waited say say you you say two laps Mm -hmm. is is the difference between okay the tires are warming up someone's already got that advantage although the times aren't that much different you add another lap to that then by the time daniel got onto those tires they Mm -hmm. will probably get up to speed quicker than it would have the other Mm -hmm. so maybe a bit of that too yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what they were thinking. We'll let everyone else do the dip work for us, mm-hmm. including dry the track yeah, at the same the time. Up, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe that was the thinking. Don't mm-hmm. know. So he had to go nonetheless, and he did get a one-lap undercut, but Lewis Hamilton came in the subsequent lap, and the gap had actually grown because by then his intermediate tyres were, were working fine. They were graining, but they were obviously up to temperature from mm. 29 laps prior, mm. uh, and that undercut did not work. And again, we saw the gap build quite quickly. Hamilton was very keen to build those gaps early on in the race so the second trigger ultimately Mm. was lost but the third one was it seems like where Red Bull potentially missed a trick again notwithstanding the gearbox problem which no one realized at the time they were coping with because there was a final safety car uh, for Marcus Ericsson's spun around Sauber car in Mm. the awkward place at the end of the Anderson Bridge I'm pretty sure that bridge is called I still think that's what Alonso should have done in Q1 (laughs) Just said, well, there's no more. No one can do anything else here. Yeah. At least he was following the arrows on the road. You know, he yeah, was pointing in the right direction. Yeah. So uh, nothing but a good road user, I suppose. Like the video game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. Uh, perhaps worth pointing out here that while Lewis Hamilton was calling for a virtual safety car, I think he did after the race admit that it was certainly safety car conditions because there was no way Marshalls would be able to rescue that car with cars still circulating at the relatively quick speeds of a virtual mm. safety car. But it seemed like. 
Daniel Ricciardo potentially had a gap here to stop for new slick tyres. Mm. He, granted, he had no new slick tyres left, but a, a new used set, if you like, a set that had done fewer than the laps that were on those tyres. Mm. To put one last roll of the dice against Lewis Hamilton's advantage, to put him under a little bit more pressure, because as he passed the pit entry line, he'd built around 22 seconds of gap to Bottas in third, which also works to underline how relatively off the pace Bottas was this yeah. weekend compared to Lewis Hamilton. Well, he got passed by Palmer. So. Well, <laughs> it reminded exactly me works. a lot of uh, his compatriot, uh, Heike Kovalainen at mm. Silverstone in 2008, where yeah. he was just so off the pace in the wet. It's a little bit strange because Bottas has really seesawed between days where he just seems to get pace where... it's Well, it's been particularly interesting because the days where he seems to have the most pace are when Hamilton has no pace mm. for whatever reason. We think back to races like Russia, for example, where he mm. won, and even Austria to a certain degree where Hamilton mm. found pace late in the race. But anyway, that's, uh, I suppose, something Mercedes can analyse over the next 18 months to his next contract negotiation. Uh, but he didn't... Ricardo, going back to Ricardo, did mm. not take that stop. Uh, he did not apply that yeah. pressure. Now, yes, we do know in retrospect, like you were saying earlier mm. on, Trent, that probably Red Bull Racing, just wanting to get the car home in the first place, lest they have a double DNF, wouldn't have been able to exercise that extra grip they would have had because he wouldn't have wanted Daniel mm. Ricciardo to push the car so hard. But... Mm. It was a very fine margin. Those are the fine uh, second, split-second decisions you make in, in calls when the safety car is called mm. out. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, if, if they're thinking about we've got to bring this car home, mm-hmm. equally they're probably not thinking about how can we win this race. Yes. And that's probably the difference between someone like a Ross Braun and mm-hmm. a Schumacher where they might have had a car you know, stuck in a gear or they've had some deficiency in the car. They're still thinking of an alternate plan going... Mm-hmm. These guys aren't as smart as us. We, we can still do this and pants them. Yeah, it's which is, I mean, it's it's been difficult to read the various strategy um, aims, if you like, of, of all the top teams. Obviously, they all want to win. We know that's the aim. But Red Bull Racing has typically been really quite good at things like you know alternate co- strategies, contra strategies, mm. being a bit cheeky with strategy. I, th- I, I thought the, the second half of last year was particularly interesting because. Red Bull assuming they were going to have a competitive car from the start of this season were already trying to to poke and prod Mercedes strategists at various points to see how they were going to respond. They mm. were they were learning. They were like a computer learning your behaviour. Yeah, they were just people. Mm. Um, and for the most part on this season, they've been quite good at that as well. But it's little situations like this where it's almost as if all of the teams over all these years have forgotten how to race other teams because so often in the last years we've had single team domination. Like Mercedes has made some unusual strategy mistakes this year when mm. I suppose because they're not used to having to deal with other teams. We saw this with Ferrari too. Mm. When they were uncompetitive, they were really good mm-hmm. at, at strategy. And as soon as they got a car that was, you know, with a sniff of victory Last just on, on pure merit, yeah. they'd lost it. Yeah. Completely lost it. So it's like they just they have one mode mm-hmm. for thinking if we're not competitive and then if once once we are we don't we forget all that stuff. Yeah. That's still really important. Just like, I mean, the famous example, Australia last year, for some mm. reason, didn't change Vettel's tyres, lost the race. Yeah. It's yeah. it's it's interesting how pressure makes people react in different ways. Um, so Daniel Ricciardo did not make that final pit stop. Mm. Uh, there was no more pressure to apply. Lewis Hamilton built, I think it was a 1.2 second gap in the first yeah. lap and then ran away thereafter. The, the race was essentially won for him. Valtteri Bottas had a go at Daniel Ricciardo towards the, the end of the race, but as we know, Ricciardo was essentially nursing his car. Mm. Although Bottas found some of that balance back and then Nico Hulkenberg who could have finished fourth had to retire from the Grand Prix as well yeah, yeah he seems destined not to get that podium 
Isn't it? Well, it was yeah. so close, wasn't it? Because there was a point where he was third, I think, early in the first half of the race, and mm. this was the race where he had, in, or he, as he did not finish on the podium, has I think I'm right in saying bettered is it Adrian Sutil's record yeah. for most uh, races entered without finishing on the podium. Yeah. So for, for almost it was going to be poetically accurate, poetically just that he was going to finish on the podium, and then yeah alas it did not happen yeah and uh that's the way it had to be unfortunately i think there's one more interesting aspect of this race that's worth touching on it happened in that second half after that third safety car perhaps mercedes having seen that ricardo was uh, had a window a pit stop window open even though he didn't take it uh was that he, they asked lewis hamilton to slow the pack down a little bit and he didn't exactly do it he didn't feel comfortable slowing down he said he kept thinking of it and senna in that famous race in monaco where he slowed down and then he crashed yeah um maintaining focus is of course very important in street circuits particularly when the conditions are greasy uh but they asked him to do it to prevent that pit stop window in opening again in the event there was another safety car which is an interesting i guess use of the driver to to bunch up the field it, it was an interesting strategy to try and pull it was and i, sp- I suppose that shows that mercedes have got that room to breathe Mm. and they can think about those things when they're under pressure mercedes don't react very well Mm -hmm. so when they've had that advantage then they can probably tinker around with algorithms as (laughs) as toto likes to call them but Mm -hmm. you know i gotta admit if if hamilton likes to think of himself as half the driver senior was he would have crashed (laughs) he would have slowed down and crashed Undoubtedly, they were thinking as well of, I think, a very similar thing happened at the end of last year's Singapore Grand Prix where Ricardo got a, essentially a free stop and almost beat Nico Rosberg to the yeah. end of the race. I think it was I think it was separated by about a second by the time the flag fell. Had he had one more lap, mm. perhaps it would have happened. So mm. all of that past knowledge, all that past information goes into these strategy calls and ultimately he didn't need it. The pack didn't need to be punched up. But I thought it was interesting, we're talking about Valtteri Bottas there as well, the idea that, I mean, Bottas finished kind of close to finished close to Ricardo as well but I, I suppose it, it sort of showed that they realized that Bottas was just not not only not on the pace of, of Hamilton but not on the pace of Ricardo in the sense that they believed that gap could have opened up again that Ricardo with mm. that damaged car could have pulled away from Bottas yeah it's, it's, it's strange and it's, it's unfortunate because so, you need you need another guy there mm-hmm. to, to help out so yeah, it, it influences your strategy quite Quite remarkably in that sense, yeah. And that's what's going to be really interesting. If we look forward past the Singapore Grand Prix as a, as a final note on, on this strategy report, is that from here on in, the championship, if this is going to go down to the wire, is going to be decided as much by the protagonists themselves, Vettel and Hamilton, as it is by their, what I think we can certainly call now, and this is mostly regarding Bottas, the second drivers, because they're the ones perhaps not in, they are in mathematical contention. I certainly think Raikkonen still is. Bottas definitely mm. still is. Uh, but nonetheless, not in, let's say, proper contention. But they're the ones who are going to be used to take points off the other driver on a, on a day where they get ahead of them for whatever reason. Mm. And you'd have to say this works, again, in Hamilton and Mercedes' favour because of the two second drivers. Bottas is the more consistent and certainly the quicker. He's more likely to get, a, get ahead of Vettel than Raikkonen is ahead of Hamilton. That's going to be important. It's hard to say. I mean, if, you know, if Kimi had made the gotten through that first mm-hmm. corner who knows what would have happened that's true i mean he was looking good at that start he mm. did and he looked quicker than vettel in, in practice as well but on yeah. the whole so far this year mm. he's generally not been quick enough i mean for example in qualifying he qualified behind the red bulls rather than second beside his teammate mm. so uh, it will be an important factor i think if he'd got in in front 
he would have found a couple more tenths. <laughs> uh, with memories of Monaco from early in the year. Yeah. I wonder yeah. how that would have played out. It would have been a fascinating thing to watch and, yeah. and decipher had anything uh, gone on there. That was the Singapore Grand Prix. Interesting to consider the various strategy permutations and an incredibly important race for the championship. Will it still go down to the wire? Well, I guess we'll find out in six races' time, but it's been a pleasure to, to have you on the program, Trent. Thanks for being here. Me. Thanks for being me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, Mike. That was the strategy report for the 2017 Singapore Grand Prix. But if you want to read more about the strategy of this week's race, go to f1strategyreport.com for the pit stop stats, tyre data and the write-up of all the action from Marina Bay. Don't forget to subscribe to us and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you normally download your podcasts. The Strategy Report is powered by the 2017 edition of Apex Race Manager, which you can download for free for iOS and Android devices. My name's Michael Laminato. You can find me at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in two weeks' time when we look back at the Malaysian Grand Prix.